calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Yellow Door. If you ask me who first saw it, I would answer that I don't know. As is the case with many childhood memories, it feels just as much like an objective recollection as it does an imagined event. I can remember my sister, whose bed was across the room from mine, lifting her head from her pillow late one night and asking, Can you see that? And just as easily, I can picture myself as the one who first saw the door, and thus alerted my sister to its presence. But the important part is not whether she or I first saw the door. The important part is that the door wasn't there. And then it was. There was nothing really exceptional about it. It was slightly smaller than the other doors in our house. Perhaps if an adult were to walk through it, they would have to duck. But my sister and I would have fit through it easily. I remember that it was painted a pale yellow color, and that it was surrounded by a white wooden door frame. And I also remember that its surface looked somewhat glossy, seeming to gleam in the moonlight. It appeared on the far wall, between the closet door, in one corner of the room, and the hallway door in the other corner. The hallway should have been the only thing behind it, but I got a strange sense, looking at it, that the door didn't lead to the hall, that it led somewhere else. There had been nothing on that spot of the wall before the door materialized, nothing aside from the wallpaper that covered all the walls of our room. As I recall, it was fantasy wallpaper, a design that my sister and I both compromised to agree on. She approved of it because it had images of princesses and galloping horses on it. I liked it because of the dragons and the castles. But while I don't remember precisely when or who first noticed it, I still grapple with the fact that, somehow, one night, a perfect rectangular patch of that wallpaper was inexplicably replaced by a door. Now, I'm sure you have reservations about this claim. Considering my age at the time, neither me nor my sister were yet ten years old, you may ask how I know it existed at all. After all, I've already admitted that my memory of the door is akin to something imagined. But my response to this, as I've already indicated, is that if it was a dream, or a mere childhood fantasy, 
it was one that both of us experienced in tandem. I'm not sure what the odds are of two people having the same dream or the same hallucination, but I know that when I could see the door, my sister could too. When it came, it was always at night, without a sound or a warning, and it never appeared before our eyes. It was always after we had looked away or began to fall asleep that it showed up. It was as though it needed to be hidden from view to appear, as though the strange mechanics of its emergence couldn't be perceived. It's here, one of us would whisper after noticing its arrival, and the other would rise with wide eyes to witness it. We would watch it for some time, until... Well, I'm not sure what would happen. I suppose we would fall asleep, though I don't specifically recall doing so. In the morning, though, it would always be gone, leaving just as stealthily as it arrived. I don't think it always appeared in the exact same spot on the wall. Sometimes it seemed to be closer to the hallway door. Other times it seemed a few inches closer to the closet door. Its exact size seemed to vary as well, although I couldn't say for sure. I never attempted to measure it. In fact, I tried to stay as far away from it as possible. Whenever I noticed it, or my sister pointed it out to me, I would writhe my way across the mattress and press my body into the opposite corner of the room. I held my blankets tight to my chin as if it would protect me from the door, or perhaps from whatever I expected to come through the door. And I watched it. I watched it with eyes that didn't blink, eyes that were certain they were witnessing something impossible. After the door had appeared a dozen or so times, my sister approached me. We may have been in the backyard at the time, or perhaps at a friend's house. The setting isn't altogether clear in my mind. But I remember her drawing near to me and saying, I think we should tell Dad. She didn't have to say what she thought we should tell Dad. I knew she was talking about the door. I was privately opposed to the idea, although, when I really thought about it, I was surprised we hadn't already told our parents. Didn't it seem like something that would drive most kids into hysterics? Something that would send us running frantically to our parents' bedroom at first sight? I wondered if, perhaps, the door didn't want to be talked about. Of course, I knew that was a ludicrous idea. A door couldn't want anything. Doors are just doors. But this isn't just a door, I thought to myself. This is just something that looks like a door. I think you're right, I told my sister. I think we should tell him. That night, or perhaps the following evening, as we sat down for dinner, my sister reached over and tapped our father's shoulder. What is it, hun? he asked. I have to tell you something, she said. What? he asked, sounding a touch impatient. Our mother turned to look as well. Sometimes, at night, my sister began, there's a door in our room, a door that's not usually there. Our father's expression quickly turned from impatience to rage. He set his fork down sternly and leaned towards us. I need you to show me where it was, he said. My sister looked at me and then back at our dad. In our room, she said. It was in our room. But our dad was already getting to his feet. No, he said. I need you to show me exactly where it was. He started off towards our room, beckoning us to follow. I rose, 
already finding our father's response to be a bit odd. I had expected him to be skeptical, but he was disturbingly alarmed instead. Did he already know about the door? I wondered. When we got upstairs and reached our bedroom, our dad knelt before us and asked us to show him where it had appeared. First, my sister, and then I, walked over and placed our hands on the fantasy world wallpaper in the approximate location where the door had tended to appear. Our father stood, distractedly running his fingers over the stubble covering his chin. Okay, he said, finally. Come here, you two. We approached and stood before him, looking up at his fanatical gaze. I need both of you to understand something, he said gravely. If you ever see a door that shouldn't be there, you have to stay away from it. Don't go near it. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Okay, the two of us whispered. And if you see it again, I need you to come find me and tell me. Right away. Do you understand? We nodded, somewhat shamefully, seeming to take his firmness as an indication that we had failed him, that we had been complacent in the face of danger. After a moment, my sister looked back up at him. But what is it, Dad? she asked. He took a deep breath and let it out slowly, looking back and forth between the two of us. Come on, he said. Let's go finish dinner. After taking one last look at the spot on the wall, he escorted us back downstairs. For some time after, weeks or maybe even months, the door stopped appearing in our room. Or if it did appear, it was only while we were asleep or not looking in its direction. I again began to wonder if its activity was intentional if it felt threatened by our father and was attempting to evade further suspicion. Though I still knew, on some level, that thoughts like this were absurd, that doors couldn't have intentions. But this isn't really a door, I reminded myself. This is just something that looks like a door. When, at last, the door returned, my sister and I quickly noticed something was different about it. It was roughly the same size, the same pale yellow color. But now, there was a soft glow emanating from the narrow crack where the bottom of the door met the ground. There was apparently now something luminous behind it. I tried to imagine what could be back there. Would it look like an extension of our house? Another room, perhaps a secret one, that until then had been hidden from us? Or would it look like something else entirely? Something completely alien? Something that, as our father seemed to suggest, didn't belong there? I looked over at my sister who was staring at the door with an odd calmness. What should we do? I asked. She stared at it a while longer. What do you think is in there? She whispered finally. I don't know, I said. It should just be the hallway behind that wall. But the light isn't on in the hallway, she said, pointing at the darkened slit below the hallway door. I'm not sure exactly when, but at some point I realized my sister had gotten out of bed. She took a few uneasy steps towards the impossible yellow door before I could even get a word out. Wait, I said in a loud whisper. I don't know if she couldn't hear me or if she just didn't want to listen, but she tottered closer still. Another few steps through the darkness, and she stood directly before it. Clasping the knob with two small hands, she twisted her wrists. 
Wait, I said again. The latch slid free, and the door slowly swung open. The golden glow that emanated from behind it began to spread. The light grew until it filled the whole room, interrupted only by the outline of my sister's form, clad in dolphin print pajamas. I held my hand up to block the glare, but it blocked her as well. As I peered between my fingers, I saw the last of her, swallowed up by the light, and I realized she had gone inside. I don't remember her coming back out, but she must have returned at some point, because she was back in her bed when we awoke the following morning. Although, in time, I grew to question whether my sister really had returned. Something about her seemed different. Of course, I couldn't say exactly how she had changed. It was just something I felt. Something in the way that she looked at me. I asked her what she saw on the other side, but she didn't respond. She just studied me silently, with an uncertain gaze. Our parents took no note of the apparent changes she'd undergone but I was nearly convinced my sister was different. I say only nearly convinced, because I can't be entirely certain. And the reason for my doubt is that this isn't the only way I remember it happening. I can also recall a version of that night, where I was the one that got out of bed and approached the door, where I had been enveloped by the light and had come back different. Though there have been plenty of nights since when I have reached past this quandary, wondering if it's possible that I didn't come back at all. For a while after, a part of me wished the door would reappear, that my sister, or perhaps I, could go back through it finding the normal world that we had left behind still waiting on the other side. But the door did not return, and in time, its image could be seen only through the haze of distant memory. Always closed, dutifully guarding the secrets that it held. the way. When she opened the door and looked outside, Greta was surprised to see how low the sun hung. It was already sinking into the serrated rows of hemlocks and pines that lined the horizon. She wondered why winter always seemed to sneak up on her even though she anticipated it, even though she had watched the seasons change in just about every continent, it always caught her off guard when the days grew short. But even with dusk falling and an icy chill settling over the valley, she was still determined to get out of the house. An hour a day, that was her rule. She grabbed her flashlight and put on a sweater, patting the pocket to make sure there were a few sticks of chalk inside. Then she sat on the bench in the foyer and tied her shoes, looking again at the setting sun. She hesitated before leaving, but only briefly. Most years there was already snow on the ground by then, but it had been dry that season, painting the woods various shades of brown and gray. There were several dozen hiking trails on and around Greta's property each of which she had trekked countless times. But still, as she walked, 
She marked trees on the trailside with chalk every hundred or so feet. She had started marking the trees about a year before, when her condition began to get bad. The rain sometimes washed the chalk away, but many of the marks remained. Some trees had several white slashes on them. Originally, the practice was a way of convincing herself that she would return home safely, that nothing bad would happen. But now that the chalk marks were visible from virtually every spot on every trail, it was less about ensuring that she wouldn't get lost, and more about maintaining a habit that made her feel safe. It was still perplexing how this could happen to her. Greta had climbed Nanga Parbat. She had conquered the treacherous north face of the Eiger. She had stood in the place where Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became immortal. Once a revered alpinist, who bravely ventured through the planet's most inhospitable terrain, she was now afraid to leave her house. How cruel life could be. When it first began, she didn't even know what agoraphobia was. Her doctor did his best to explain it to her, but her confusion remained. The part she struggled the most with was the source of her fear. What had been the trigger? There had been no tragedy, no great failure. She was at the pinnacle of her career. She had accolades under her belt, ample support from sponsors. And then, one morning, she had woken up and realized she couldn't do it anymore. She had developed a sudden suspicion, no, a certainty that the outside world was no longer safe. She was constantly scared that something horrible was about to happen. But it wasn't a fear of any one thing. It was vague. Like her paralysis was the culmination of a million small fears. The increasingly unstable world felt like it was closing in around her. And the only thing she could do was hide from it. She had hoped it would only be a temporary affliction, like an extended panic attack. But when a month had passed, and then another, she understood she was up against something serious. She quietly announced her retirement, and when that was out of the way, she fielded the influx of calls from sponsors. They all wanted to know the same thing. What was next? This is the perfect opportunity for a pivot, they would tell her. Which is marketing speak for, if you're not going to climb mountains anymore, how are you still going to be of monetary value to us? Have you considered doing promotional posts on social media, they would ask. The question made her squirm. One sponsor suggested that she start a podcast. Start a podcast, she thought. I would rather die. Of course, she didn't blame them for suggesting these things. They were just doing their jobs, she knew. But regardless of their intentions, she hadn't gotten into mountain climbing to become a personality. She'd gotten into it because she wanted to stand on top of big things. And if her only choice now was to become an outdoors influencer, she decided she would rather not have sponsors at all. The only question then was, where would her money come from? She had always imagined herself becoming a guide or a trainer when she retired from professional mountaineering. But those weren't things she could do from inside her house. Thankfully, she had a bit of money saved up, which floated her for a while. But now, a year into her retirement, her savings was growing thin and the anxiety she felt at the thought of going broke certainly didn't help her already precarious mental state. As she walked, the woods grew dim, her lips cracking in the cold, dry air. She glanced at her watch and was glad to see that thirty minutes had passed. It used to be that she could hardly walk for fifteen minutes before her nerves insisted that she turn back. It was minor progress but progress nonetheless. 
She walked another quarter mile or so, and just as she was about to turn back and head home, she spotted something. Tucked back on the side of the trail, just up ahead. She squinted, struggling to make out what it was. The sun had completely set by then, and darkness was falling quickly over the woods. It's definitely man-made, she thought to herself. As she got closer, she turned on her flashlight and found that it was a phone booth. It was tall and rectangular, comprised of rusting metal. On each side was a large oval window. It was an odd thing to see in the middle of the forest, but what truly disturbed her about it was the fact that she was certain it hadn't been there before. She rarely made it out that far, but she had clearly walked past that spot. Her chalk marks appeared on trees only a few feet away. She shined her flashlight further up the trail, and then back behind her, trying to understand how someone could have gotten it out there. The trail didn't seem wide enough for a car. It seemed like a lot of trouble to go through to dump an old hunk of scrap metal. Should I report it to someone? she wondered. Her property line was a few hundred yards back, so it was technically in state forest territory. But she figured the rangers would still want to know that someone was dumping on their land. Is that really what happened, though? she asked herself. The phone booth didn't look like it had been dumped there haphazardly. It wasn't laid over on its side or leaning against a tree. It stood firm in the ground, perfectly upright. The sight of it was hard for her to comprehend. It became even more perplexing, though, when the phone began to ring. She jerked her body so hard in response, the flashlight nearly flew out of her hand. But even though she was terrified almost to the point of panic, she found herself taking a step toward it. You don't run away, she muttered under her breath. And then she took another step. You don't run away. She kept walking until she stood before it. Through the beam of her flashlight, she could see the phone inside rattling in its cradle each time it rang. She slid the door open and reached a hand inside, a hand that had driven ice axes into the faces of frozen waterfalls, a hand that had crimped impossible holds on towering granite walls, a hand that had reached into bottomless glacier crevasses to pull fallen climbers to safety. And now, that hand clamped the shiny black phone and lifted it. The ringing stopped, and after a brief moment of hesitation, Greta brought the phone to her ear. She said nothing, only listened, and after a few seconds, the faint sound of static she heard on the line was replaced by a voice. It was an unsettling voice, piercing and cold. It sounded like a child's voice, but not a child's voice. More like something that was trying to imitate the voice of a child. And what it said to her was only a few words, or perhaps more accurately, a few numbers. She kept listening for a while after, but the voice did not return. She hung up the phone and stepped away from the booth, panning her flashlight through the murky woods that surrounded her. Surging with adrenaline, she turned and made for home. As she walked, peering continuously over her shoulder, she thought about the numbers. Ostensibly, 
they represented a date. One that was only a few months away. April 17th, 2024. Was something meant to happen on that date? Her fingers were wrenched around the neck of her flashlight, her body so tense she could hardly feel the cold. As she stared through the darkness, at the narrow ring of forest made visible by her flashlight, a memory came to her. It was early in the morning, several years before. Dawn was yet to break, and Greta was ascending through the darkness, making her attempt at the summit of Lotse. She had stopped for a moment and looked back down the route, her rope trailing off into the black abyss below. She knew the other members of her team were trailing behind, just beyond the darkness. But for a minute, she had felt an eerie sense of isolation, like nobody was really back there, like she had been alone all the way, accompanied by nothing but the frozen dark. What she felt now was like the opposite of that, a fear not that she was alone, but that she wasn't. That just beyond the glow of her flashlight, something was watching her. Her heart was racing, the voice in her head insisting that she run. But instead, she calmly repeated her mantra to herself. You don't run away. She swiveled the beam of her flashlight from one side of the trail to the other, illuminating the chalk marks leading her home. Her steps were soft and muted, and she listened intently for the slightest sound. When she saw her porch light shining through the trees, she was awash with relief. She moved swiftly, pulling her keys out, unlocking the door, and hurling herself inside. She threw the deadbolt and took a deep breath. You're safe, she said. But even as she spoke the words, she was skeptical of them. Still unable to kick the feeling that someone was following her, she inspected every room of her house. And only when she was certain that she was alone could she rest. She drew a warm bath, undressed, and lowered herself into it. 4, 17, 24, she thought to herself. What did it mean? Was it a warning? Or did it mean anything at all? Maybe the whole thing had been the product of her frantic imagination. She wondered if this was something she was obligated to tell her therapist about. There's no way, she thought. Attempting to explain her experience to someone, especially someone with an intimate understanding of her condition, didn't seem bearable. She knew how insane the story would sound. Of course, she wanted to get better, to be transparent about her progress and setbacks, but she wasn't going to set herself up to have her sanity challenged, even if it was her sanity that was in question. In the days that followed, Greta was back to being housebound. The phone, and the voice that had come through it, felt like they had proven the validity of her paralyzing fear. See, the anxious voice in her head told her, it is unsafe out there. A full week passed before she finally managed to leave the house again. She took it slow, venturing a little further from home each day. Snow had begun to fall by then, obscuring the brown earth with soft white pillows and drifts. She normally found winter pleasant and serene, but the woods felt different now. She still felt like she was being watched whenever she left the house. But despite her fear, she was determined to return to the phone booth. She needed to see it again. She needed to know whether it was real or a sign that her condition was worsening. She continued to push herself, and after a few days, she made it back to the spot where it had been 
or, at least, the spot where she thought it had been. She went from her property line all the way to where the trail ran into a creek near the coast, but there was no sign of the phone booth, not even an impression in the snow where it might have stood. Did I really just imagine it? She wondered. She combed the area for close to an hour, treading a series of tangled trails through the snow. When it started to get dark, she made her way home, keenly scanning the woods as she walked. When Greta got home that night, she decided she was going to adopt a dog. She'd been meaning to get one for a while, ever since she started seeing coyotes and foxes inspecting her chicken coop. But now she felt a dog would be valuable not only for the safety of her chickens, but for her safety as well. She had always wanted a dog, but she didn't think she'd be able to take care of one, considering that most of her time was spent traveling. Now, though, the only hurdle was getting out of the house long enough to go to the adoption center and find one. But the following day, she managed to do just that. She came back home with Fitzroy, a three-month-old border collie. He was lanky and clumsy, loping around after her everywhere she went. She felt safer with him around, but there was one thing that still weighed on her. The date. She had drawn a big black circle over April 17th on her calendar, and she watched its approach nervously. When she took Fitz out for walks, she still scanned the snowy horizon. She was frightened of seeing the phone booth again, but a part of her also thought that if she could just find it one more time, she might be able to make sense of the cryptic message it gave her. With no resolution, she felt defenseless against the steady march of time. Each minute, each day, each week, passed with agonizing dread. She tried to convince herself that nothing was coming, that she had only imagined the voice on the phone, that she had perhaps even imagined the phone booth itself. You're allowing your fear to manipulate your experiences, she told herself. But remaining cool and stoic wasn't easy. When March came, the snow began to melt. She kept forcing herself to get outside. But she still felt like there were eyes on her every time she walked fits or went out to feed the chickens. Nobody is there, she silently insisted. As March ended and April began, she tried to stay resolute in her belief that the 17th would come and go without incident, just like Y2K and that day in 2012 did. When it did finally come, she awoke, just like she did every morning. Everything was as she'd left it. Fitz slept at the foot of her bed, and a soft ray of sunshine sliced through the room. She was almost surprised at first. Of course everything is fine, she told herself as she poured a glass of orange juice. Why wouldn't it be? After breakfast, she let the chickens out to peruse the yard. Fitz followed her around the house for a while, but eventually he went outside to explore as well. She watched him from the upstairs window as he chased a squirrel through the grass. The squirrel scampered up a tree, and Fitz sat at its base, barking incessantly. Greta relished in the breeze blowing in through the window, finding peace in the rare things that she could be certain of. She hated that she had to fight tooth and nail just to feel okay from one minute to the next. It wasn't that she'd expected life to be easy. She obviously wasn't opposed to uphill battles. But it was hard living, always expecting something terrible to be on the horizon. Nothing is coming, she told herself. The only thing posing a threat to your life is you. She walked over to her bed 
and started making it. As she pulled the comforter back to straighten the sheets, she noticed something. Fitz had stopped barking. The chickens had stopped clucking, too. Even the songbirds had gone quiet. She was standing over her bed, still holding the hem of her sheet, when she heard the distinct sound of hooves outside. The steps were gentle and measured. It didn't sound like any animal she was familiar with. She looked over her shoulder at the window on the far wall, wondering what she would see if she walked over and looked outside. Downstairs, her phone began to ring. Have you seen me? When I picked up the phone and heard my brother's voice, I already knew what he was going to ask me. It was the third night he'd spent in the drunk tank just that year. I'll come pick you up, I told him. I got in my truck and drove down to the police station. Fergus came walking out of the reflective glass doors just as I pulled up. He had a subtle grin on his face, the expression he seemed to make when he thought something was funny but was also somewhat embarrassed about it. Sorry, he said, snickering as he got in the truck. I turned to him as we pulled out of the parking lot. This is funny, I asked. The grin disappeared from his face as he swept a long strand of hair behind his ear. No, he said. What even happened? I asked him. I don't know, he told me, looking out the window. I was at Double J Saloon and some tool got in my face. I don't remember much after that. Last night? I asked. No he said, snickering under his breath again. It was three days ago. Damn, so they booked you and everything, huh? Yep, he said, the grin fading from his face again. They said they're going to hold me for 30 days next time. Well, I said, it's not like you don't deserve it. He frowned, looking down at his lap. Wait, what the hell, he said. What? I asked. I think they gave me someone else's jeans, he said. I knew these didn't fit right. He reached his hand into one of the pockets and pulled something out. Jesus, he said. I looked over and saw that he was holding a photograph. It was a picture of a woman's face, almost having the appearance of a photo someone would take for their passport or driver's license. She was somewhere between middle-aged and elderly, with grayish-blonde hair and dark eyes. She wore a light blue turtleneck sweater, but that was about all that could be garnered from the photo. She was so far out of focus, the fine details of her face had been blurred, leaving only an eerie approximation of what she looked like. Fergus flipped the picture over. On the back, Someone had written the words, Have you seen me? in black pen. What the? Fergus muttered as he stared at the photo. I drew my eyes back to the road. It's probably just a missing person thing, I said. Fergus looked at me disbelievingly. Well, it's not a very effective one, he said. No number to call with tips? No name? And her picture? Did they have to use one that made her look like a featureless monster? 
Fergus, sometimes people are working with very few resources, I said, as I pulled onto the street where he lived. Not everyone's approach to life is graceful and well thought out, as you can attest. God, he said, her eyes, they're just black pits. He put the photo back in the pocket he had found it in. Then he unzipped the pants and began trying to wiggle out of them as he sat. What are you doing? I asked. This is creepy, man. I don't know whose pants these are. I don't want them on me. Okay, I said, but you can wait a second. I don't want you getting out of my truck with no pants on. Fine, he said, as we pulled up to his apartment complex. He zipped them back up and got out of the truck, slamming the door and waddling awkwardly inside. You're welcome, I said under my breath as I drove away. The whole way home, I thought about the blurry picture of the old woman. I had tried to be the level-headed one, but the picture did disturb me. The blank expression on her face. The peculiar question scrawled on the back. Have you seen me? It was haunting, without any context. But I had plenty of other things to worry about and within a few days, the picture had faded from my mind. It wasn't until the next time I spoke to Fergus that I was reminded of it. I hadn't heard from him since I'd dropped him off, so I gave him a call to see how he was doing. I remember being immediately surprised at the sound of his voice. He sounded weak or tired. Perhaps both. You all right? I asked. He hesitated. Yeah, he said distractedly. I'm... I'm fine. You're obviously not, though, I said. He sighed. Do you remember that picture? He asked. Yeah, I said. Why? You won't believe this, he told me. But I was obviously freaked out by it. And when I got inside, I threw it away. And then, a couple hours later, it was back in my pocket. Oh, come on, I said. You probably just put it back in your pocket and forgot. Or maybe there were a few of them in the pocket to begin with. Whoever made them was probably handing them out. No, he said. It wasn't the same pocket. It wasn't even the same pair of pants. I threw those away, too. All right, I said. Well, don't freak out about it. Again, I tried to keep a cool demeanor, but beneath the surface, I felt uneasy. Do you want me to come over, I asked. I can... No, he insisted in a surprisingly assertive tone. It's... It's fine. I'll be okay. There was a pause, and then he asked, you haven't seen anything, right? What do you mean? I asked. Like what? Nothing, he said. Just, listen, I gotta go. He hung up, leaving me a bit stunned. I was torn between believing him and thinking he was simply on another bender. The picture bothered me but I wasn't willing to believe it had supernatural powers. And it was hardly the most absurd claim Fergus had ever made. He had tried to convince me of all kinds of things when he was wasted or high. The last thing I want to suggest is that I thought I was better than him. I had my share of troubles, too. Fergus was just an unreliable narrator at times but I couldn't deny that there was something inherently strange about the picture. And part of me was inclined to believe his claim about its impossible reappearance, though I lacked any logical reason for doing so. But regardless of what was causing his distress, I was concerned about Fergus. So 
The following day, I stopped by his apartment on my way home from work. I knocked firmly on his door, and after a few minutes, he answered. His skin was pale, his eyes bloodshot. He looked somehow skinnier than the last time I'd seen him. Despite the clear signs that he needed help, though, he remained cagey with me, opening the door just wide enough for us to see each other's faces. Why won't you tell me what's going on? I asked him. I don't want this to spread to you, he said, almost in a whisper. You don't want what to spread to me? I asked. He frowned, scratching at the dry, colorless skin on his forehead. Nothing, he said, casting a wary glance over his shoulder. Is someone here with you? I asked. His face took on an unexpectedly severe expression, dark eyes fixing on me. I think you should go, he said, forcefully. Come on, I said. Ferg, you can talk to me but he just looked at me coldly and shut the door. Needless to say, the interaction didn't do anything to ease my concerns, and I became even more worried in the days that followed when Fergus stopped responding to me entirely. I texted him, called him, pounded on his door. I knew something was wrong. I had a horrid pit forming in my stomach and I didn't know what else to do. So, I called the police and asked them to do a welfare check. I wasn't at all prepared for what they found. They called me back a few hours later and asked me to come into the station, refusing to say much over the phone. I knew, at that point, that he was gone. When I arrived at the station, they told me I would have to identify the body. I was led into a cold room. Its walls were paneled with stainless steel, and at the center of it stood a stretcher with a white sheet laid over it. A husky man wearing a long gray apron stood over the stretcher, holding the edges of the sheet delicately in his fingers. Are you ready? he asked me. I nodded, and he pulled the sheet back to reveal Fergus's body. His skin was an icy blue, almost purple in some areas. His long hair matted and wiry. My attention was immediately drawn to his eyes, which were still open, staring blankly at the ceiling. His gaze was anything but peaceful, though. There were deep abrasions on his eyes and on the skin around them, making them look like a pair of crimson asterisks. Even more odd, his irises appeared to have lost their color. They had been a deep emerald green, but were now a foggy silver color, at least in the parts that hadn't been gouged. That's him. I said faintly, and the man in the apron pulled the sheet back over the body. Before I could digest what I'd just seen, two officers entered the room and approached me. They were dressed in semi-formal wear, their badges hanging from lanyards around their necks. One was a man with a neatly shaved head, the other a woman with russet eyes and short brown hair. Mr. Connolly, the man said, we'd like to have a word with you. I nodded and they led me to an office down the hall. It smelled like stale coffee and held a simple wooden desk along with an assortment of chairs. Take a seat, the female officer said. I lowered myself into a chair and the two of them sat across from me. I'm Detective Furnett, she said. And this is Detective Sills, she added, gesturing to her partner. We'd like to talk to you about your brother. Do you know what happened? I asked. 
We know some things, she said, but there's still a lot we don't know. His cause of death is still to be determined. As you saw, he suffered numerous injuries to his eyes, although it doesn't appear that those were fatal. And you don't know who did that to him? I asked. Detective Furnett looked down at a folder that sat on the desk in front of her. Well, that's one of the parts that's difficult to understand. It appears, Mr. Connolly, that he did that to himself. We found skin and eye tissue underneath his fingernails. I was dumbstruck. God, I said. Why? In the silence that ensued, a single question floated through my head. Have you seen me? Well, Detective Sills said, that's what we're trying to figure out. Can you think of any reason he would do that to himself? I mean, you know about his history, I said. Right, he replied, and we are running a toxicology test to see if substance use may have contributed. But we also have reason to believe... He paused, glancing at his partner. We have reason to believe something else may be going on. What do you mean? Well, your brother's isn't the first case, Detective Furnett said. We've seen these injuries a handful of times in recent months. Always the eyes, and always self-inflicted. She crossed her arms and rested her elbows on the desk. We'd just like to know if he told you anything in the last few days. Anything that might be connected. The barrage of information and the haunting image of my brother's face had left me with a tenuous grasp on reality. I could barely keep up with what they were telling me. That single question still repeating in my head. Have you seen me? What's that? Detective Sills asked. I hadn't even realized that I'd said it out loud. A picture, I said. He found a picture in his pocket. It was a picture of a woman, and on the back it said, Have you seen me? Like a missing person poster, asked Detective Furnett. Kind of, I said. But it didn't have a name or any information on it. Anyway, it really seemed to bother him. He said he tried to get rid of it, but it came back. It came back? Detective Sills asked. That's what he said, I told him. And would you be able to recognize this woman? The one in the picture? Asked Detective Furnett. Maybe, I said. I don't know, the picture was kind of blurry. She flipped a folder open and scribbled something on one of the pages inside. Is there anything else? She asked. No, I said. That's all. Well, we appreciate you speaking with us, Detective Sills said. And we're very sorry for your loss. When I got home that night, I felt more empty and exhausted than I could ever remember feeling in my life. My relationship with Fergus had been strained for years, but I had always imagined that at some point we would reconcile, that there would come a day when we'd be close again. But now that day would never come. The only version of Fergus I had to hold on to was elusive and closed off. I wished more than anything that he felt like he could trust me, I wished that he had told me what he was going through in his final days. I wasn't sure if I could have helped him or not, but I wished I'd at least had the chance to try. The next few days, I hardly got out of bed. When I did finally rouse myself and leave the house, it was only because I ran out of food. I took a shower and brushed my teeth, and then I got in my truck and drove to the supermarket. Under the ambient glow of the ceiling lights, I aimlessly walked the aisles. 
I knew I needed to eat, but nothing looked good. As I pushed my cart into the produce section, hoping something would spur my appetite, I noticed something peculiar out of the corner of my eye. There was a person standing in front of the potato shelf. They didn't have a cart or a basket. They didn't seem to be shopping at all. They were just standing there, arms hanging limply, appearing to stare dead-eyed in my direction. I turned away before I could look right at them, because I was scared of who they might be. Deep down, though, I knew who they were. Even in the blur of my peripheral vision, or perhaps because of it, I recognized her hazy composition, her sandy gray hair, and dark, expressionless eyes. Without looking back, I abandoned my shopping cart and left the store. She isn't real, I told myself on the drive home. You're grieving. You feel guilty for not being able to help him. You're distraught and agitated, and it's making you see things. I went back home and climbed into bed, but the next morning, hunger drove me back out into the world. I went to a local diner and got a sandwich and a bowl of soup. Having starved myself for the last day and a half, I ate ravenously. When I finished eating, I paid my bill and headed back out to my truck. As I reached into my pocket to grab my car keys, I felt something that I didn't expect to be there. It was a small piece of paper, glossy in its texture. I stopped myself before I could pull it out. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to see what it was. I got in my truck and drove home, keeping my line of sight confined to the road in front of me. This must have been what it felt like for Fergus, I thought. I felt so stupid for doubting him. When I got back to my house, I went from room to room, closing all the blinds. I took off the pants I was wearing and threw them in the trash, and then I put on a pair of sweatpants that didn't have any pockets. I felt secure, at least for a while. As I got ready to go to sleep that night, I heard the unmistakable sound of footsteps pacing the upper floor of my house. I didn't understand how anyone could have gotten inside, but I suppose there was a lot about my predicament that I didn't understand. As I heard the footsteps gradually descend the stairs, I closed my eyes, unwilling to see what was approaching. I understood, in that moment, why Fergus had refused to tell me what was going on. It wasn't that he didn't trust me. He was only trying to spare me. But as I sat in my living room, my eyes squeezed shut, listening in terror to the slow and steady approach of the footsteps. I knew there was no saving me. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, I just want to make sure you know I have a Patreon. It's $3 per new episode. You get early access to new releases, and you get to listen without ads. You also get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long, sort of a mystery story with some cosmic horror elements wrapped in. It's about a struggling journalist who sort of becomes obsessed with this strange missing persons case he's investigating. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting app you like. 
And there's a link for that in the episode description, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. I've also got t-shirts for sale. There's a few different colors, some pretty awesome designs. And you can find the link for that in the description as well. You can also follow me on social media. I'll include links for that. And if you feel so inclined, please feel free to leave a rating or review wherever you listen. I really appreciate everyone who's taken the time to leave one of those. And that's all I've got for now. So thanks again for listening. Till next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.